Lord God, the church is yours. We are yours. And we give you thanks for bringing us together. If we need a word from you, so many of us need a word from you in different ways. So we bring ourselves before you this morning. Thank you for meeting us in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is uh, sort of an appendix to our series on the Lord's Supper. And uh, today, as you can tell from our slides, we're, we're talking about the church and the Lord's Supper and the connection between those two things. Let me start out by just asking you this. What makes a meal the Lord's Supper? Can you go to the next slide for me? I don't have the clicker. Thank you. Is it something like that? If you just uh, have bread, a loaf of bread and some juice, does that make something the Lord's Supper? Oh, thank you, Michael. Well, no, because you can, you can eat bread and drink juice anytime it's not the Lord's Supper. Well, maybe doing it on Sunday morning. Mm, nah, not necessarily. You can eat, eat bread and drink juice on Sunday morning and it's not the Lord's Supper. Uh, maybe saying a few words before it, getting the right words down and saying those. Does that make it the Lord's Supper? I don't, I don't really think so. I mean, imagine this. Let's say Olivia and I are driving down the road one day and I pull over at a gas station and I get, uh, get some grape juice. Uh, get some bread, get back in the car, and I'm like, you know what? Now this is the Lord's Supper. And all of a sudden I say, well, let, let's say a prayer, and we're going to say this is the Lord's Supper. Does that work? I mean, something strikes me as off with that, and I think it does most of us, that I can't just turn something into the Lord's Supper with a few magic thoughts and a few magic words. What is it that makes the Lord's Supper the Lord's Supper? Now, you see, the Catholics have an answer for this. Roman Catholics. Wherever you have a priest, then you can have the Lord's Supper. And there's a whole line that, you know, a, a hierarchy you go down through, you get the priest, the priest is appointed, he can give you the Lord's Supper, you can't just do it. And that, the Roman Catholics understand that. I'm not Roman Catholic, and I don't think I need a priest to have the Lord's Supper. But I think the Catholics may be onto something, because we Protestants, we struggle to know what exactly does make it the Lord's Supper. I mean, we think we know it when we see it, but then where do you draw lines on, on when it's not? I think the Roman Catholics are right in seeing an intricate connection between the church and the Lord's Supper. It's not just something anybody, anywhere, anytime can say, voila, this is the Lord's Supper. It has always been, from the earliest times, from the scriptures I'll show you today, to the very earliest uh, associations of the church down through history it's been a church aspect and it's not essentially the same thing if you detach it from the church but before we talk about that let me just ask you this what is the church now um, I'm drawing here from a, a book by a guy named John Jefferson Davis and he does a great job with this this is not exactly what what he says it's my adaptation of what he says but he, he says, imagine uh, you're throwing a football now, all right? So, so just do that. You know, we're all playing football, at least some of us may like to play football, out there in the churchyard, throwing the football around. Um, 
That could be fun. It could be interesting. Maybe a group gathers around. It could be more interesting. But then imagine that you're throwing a football around, doing the same exact thing, but now you're in AT&T Stadium. And there are tens of thousands of people gathered around watching you play. Now what, what happens? You're doing the same thing, but the context changed, didn't it? And because the context changed, the significance, your experience significance of that event changed. You see? You see? Same, same actions, but you understand there's a totally different context, and the significance then goes way up, right? I want to say to you that our, our experience of the significance of the Lord's Supper is directly related to our understanding of the church, because the two go together. And because frequently we've had a kind of low view of the church, a view of the church as being just this kind of collection of individuals, but mainly what, what we are as individuals, we just come together sometimes. We have this low understanding of the church. It gives us sometimes a low understanding of the Lord's Supper. So what is the church? What is the context in which you take the Lord's Supper? Let me just run through a few scriptures here with you. The church is the body of Christ. I didn't even put this scripture up here. It's a very familiar designation and metaphor for the Lord's church. It's the body of Christ. Unfortunately, these, these metaphors that I'm showing you this morning, uh, they're so familiar to us that they don't grip us like they probably would if we were hearing them for the first time or even the second or third. What does it mean to say that the church is the body of Christ? What kind of dignity has God bestowed upon his people that he would say, you know, there was a literal physical body of Christ that ascended on high. And in this world, the people that are gathered together in his name, now you are the body of Christ. You see, I have a weighty view of the church because I have a weighty view of Christ. I have a high view of the church because I have a high view of Christ. And although we may be walking on, I'm terrible with knowing what stuff is, whatever kind of carpet this is, whatever kind of flooring this is, actually, if we could see the spiritual reality we are in majestic royal halls and we gather together as the church because we are the body of Christ. The church is the temple of God. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That's what the church is. Again, we can't appreciate the significance of that statement because we don't live around temples. We've heard it so much, first of all, and then secondly, we don't, we don't have much association with temples. Temples are sacred places. The temple of God to the Jews was the most sacred 
place on earth. There's nowhere else you can plant your feet on earth that's as sacred as that temple was. Paul says the church is being built together as that temple. And God dwells in it. See, this is what happens when we come together. We come together as the sacred living space of God. Let me show you another passage. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Um, now I'm jumping all around. Let me see. I have a lot of passages up here. Somebody help. <laughs> um, there we go, right there. Thank you. I got it. Okay, now see, I see. I, I always get confused on this control here. I got it now. Um, so uh, when we come together, strange and incredible things happen. Look at this passage, one that we don't think much about. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus. In the name of the Lord Jesus doesn't mean just put the name on your sign. doesn't mean just say the word's name. It has something to do with the Lord's presence and power. He is represented. He is coming to us. In the name of the Lord Jesus. And that's weird. My spirit is present. Somehow Paul thought that in the Lord, in the Holy Spirit, his spirit's going to be present with the Corinthians when they're gathered together. With the power of the Lord Jesus. This is what's happening when you're together. Jesus is present. His power is present. And that's when you exercise church discipline, he says. And you can go back and read the chapter to see what that's all about. Seemed like it was an important action to take right then for Paul to deal with gross immorality in the church. But he didn't say just deal with it. Deal with it in your own strength. Deal with it with your own thought power. He said deal with it in the power of the Lord Jesus when you come together. Now, this is another place that uh, shows Paul's expectation for the Lord to be moving in the church. Now, I'm not trying to get into the details here of what this passage is saying, but he basically, basically says, you know, unbelievers come in, they see you speaking in tongues. They'll say, wow, that's crazy. Um, you're out of your minds. But if you all prophesy and the outsider comes in, the unbeliever will be called account by all, and the secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. You know what the temple of God is? It's the place where God dwells. And what Paul understood about the church is that it's a place where, regardless of the various ways it may, may happen, it's a place, it's a gathering where God is really among us. When you take the Lord's Supper, you take it in a gathered place, the temple of God, the body of Christ, and we say God is really here. Look at one more passage before we uh, move on. Uh, just, just I meant, to, I meant to cut out verses 22 through 24. They're on a different slide. Just the first three verses here. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest. Okay, now, now this is at the end of the book of Hebrews, and he's contrasting two mountains. Mount Sinai is the one implied here. When the Israelites gathered around it after coming out uh, across the, the Red Sea after, after the Exodus, they gathered around and they were scared. And this is what he reminds them of. And the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. But God appeared to them there, and they were frightened, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. 
Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Okay, that's, that's one mountain. He said, that's not the one you've come to. Now, that's a crazy mountain. <laughs> if you've been there, standing there with God speaking and the ground shaking and knowing that if your animal gets loose and runs up there, it's going to die. That's a, that's a scary, crazy mountain, right? That's not the one we've come to. That's an awe-inspiring mountain, but it's not the one we've come to. Here's the one we've come to. I separated this out so you can see the different, different things that, that are present when we gather together. We've come to Mount Zion, to Jerusalem, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering. To the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And to God, the judge of all. To the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You think about coming to somewhere like that when you come to church? You come to hosts of angels gathered together. And the contrast is between that fearful moment at Sinai and this joyful moment, gathering with the angels in worship, gathering with the righteous who have died and gone on to be with the Lord, who are now made perfect in his presence, gathering with Jesus himself, gathering with God, the judge of all the earth, and then skip down a few verses to the conclusion. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Do you come to church with reverence and awe? J.I. Packer, recently deceased theologian J.I. Packer, said that Christians today, though they cherish great thoughts of man, they have, as a rule, small thoughts of God. And I fear that we have become over-familiar with God. Not in the true sense. That's actually impossible to search out the infinity of God and be too familiar with Him. But in, in, a, in our own understanding we've become relaxed and comfortable and we've lost a sense of majesty God has become our buddy and our pal and I wonder if we've forgotten how to worship with reverence and awe to recognize the place where we are when we come into his presence. When we gather as a church, we gather with the angels who know what they're doing. We gather with the righteous ones, the martyrs of the faith who have gone on before us, and they know what they're doing. But do we know what we're doing when we come together as a church? Do we know what it means to be together as the body of Christ, to be together as the temple of God we encounter the Lord we encounter the God of heaven when we worship 
So, having said all that, there's a foundation. Let me ask you this. Do you despise the church of God? Now, I know the immediate answer to that is no. Of course not. How dare you suggest such a thing? And I'm not accusing you. But what I want to say is that it is possible to despise with our actions, even though we would never do so with our intentions. Paul had questions for the church at Corinth about whether they were despising the church of God. And now I'm going to reread and rehearse some of what Brother Charles said a few weeks ago, but it was so good it bears repeating. I'm coming at it from a little bit different angle with a little bit different purpose, but uh, uh, we need to see these verses one more time if we're going to see the connection between the church and the Lord's Supper. So this is 1 Corinthians 11. Paul said, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Now, I have a feeling that many of them would have said, no, it is the Lord's Supper. They may have even said, well, look how we do it. You know, we have the right elements. We recite the right words. We pray the right prayer. But he said to them, it's not the Lord's Supper you're eating. Why was that? If you read the passage, if you remember Brother Charles' talk, it's because they had missed the point. They had not valued what Jesus values. Their priorities were not in line with Jesus' priorities, and that was being reflected as they partook maybe of the right stuff. But the whole way they were going about it was misguided. And because their values were not aligned with the values of Christ, Christ was not sitting at the head of their table. And so Paul says, it's not the Lord's Supper you're eating. And particularly, as we're going to see, when you're okay with division in the body of Christ. In this case, even more particularly, when you're okay with separating the rich from the poor in the body of Christ. You're destroying what the Lord's Supper is all about. The Lord's Supper is a proclamation of the gospel in tangible, concrete form. And the gospel is a gospel of reconciliation. The gospel is a gospel that draws all nations together under one king, King Jesus. And the Lord's Supper must always reflect that. And if it doesn't, it's not the Lord's Supper. Look at this. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, and another gets drunk. Now, when I came up, I don't remember if I heard this, if I read it, I probably read it somewhere. But I know we, we tried to explain away how Paul could say somebody got drunk in this passage. And let me just say, uh, I don't think Paul's in favor of getting drunk. <laughs> getting drunk stupid. If you do it with any regularity, it'll destroy your life. <laughs> so, so let me say that as a caveat up front. But if you look at this passage, Paul says pretty clearly, somebody's getting drunk coming to church. And what I want to say to you is that that's not Paul's main concern here. And if you will read closely the letters of Paul in the New Testament, you will find that he is more concerned 
with people dividing the church than he is with people getting drunk. It's just true. Again, please, nobody misunderstand me here. <laughs> Stay away from the alcohol. But place Scripture's emphasis where Scripture places it. You see, sometimes what's happened is we've gotten into our religious mode and we like to point fingers at the, what we would call fleshly sins that aren't really what Paul calls fleshly, not where he places the emphasis anyway. And we say, well, if you get drunk, then you're out. But now if I divide the church, well, you know, that's different. If I'm uh, irreconcilable with my brothers and sisters, well, you know, that's just one of those things. This is a fact of life. You got to deal with it. No, that's not the, what the scriptures emphasize. The scriptures say, be reconciled to each other. That's what the gospel says. That's what the Lord's Supper says. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God? Do you not see what Jesus has done in bringing the church together? Do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? You see, and Brother Charles talked about this, what they were doing in some way was they were, they were getting together for their worship, to partake of the Lord's Supper, and initially it was in a meal context. And some people were eating their meals, the people who had more, people who were more well off and they had separated out from those who had less and Paul says that's not just an option for you guys if you do that you're destroying the Lord's Supper but notice what he doesn't say he doesn't say now don't you have houses to take the Lord's Supper in That would have been an easy solution to the problem, right? You just take the Lord's Supper with people you like more. Take the Lord's Supper with people who are more like you. Take the Lord's Supper with uh, people you agree with more. And that would solve the problem, wouldn't it? Paul refused to go that route. Because the Lord's Supper is a church act. Now, I'm not talking about what we do during a pandemic, okay? I'm not trying to critique the elders' decision here to tell us all to commune on our own during this special season when we haven't had a lot of options, okay? Please don't misunderstand me. But, but generally, the Lord's Supper is a church act. And he does not say, well, you all have houses, take the Lord's Supper on your own. The Lord's Supper brings us together as one body. We could all say we're going to take it with people more like us if we wanted to. It'd be a lot easier sometimes. The church would be a lot easier like that. Just say, let's just go to church with people we like and who aren't difficult at all. Some people try that. The problem is every church eventually gets difficult <laughs> or it dies out one or the other. Paul never says, yeah, let's just, let's just have a Jew church and a Gentile church. Let's just have a church where people like their own things over here and their own things over there. He never entertains that. 
details. He understood that Jesus was the king of all nations. This was the fulfillment of prophecy. This was the Messiah for all the world. All being brought together in him. And we don't all get our own little kingdoms with our own little preferences and our own little groups that we like. We come together under one king. We sit together at one table. And we realize that in Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's not circumcised or uncircumcised, slave or, or free, barbarian or Scythian. There's not even cowboys or eagles in the body of Christ. But Christ is all and in all. And that's what unifies us. It's not black or white. It's not rich or poor. It's not weak or strong. It's everybody coming under King Jesus together. That's what the body of Christ is. That's what the Lord's Supper reflects. That's why Paul says, I meant to put this in the PowerPoint, but I, I forgot it. But in 1 Corinthians 10, he says that uh, because we all partake of that one loaf, we who are many are all one body. Because we all partake of this one loaf, we who are many are one body. That's what happens. The, that one loaf we come and share, it symbolizes that we're together. Not only does it symbolize it, but as we've been talking about in this series, it does something. It unifies us. It, it reinforces the unity we have in Christ as we share together. I don't have to understand all of how that works to believe it. This is what the Lord's Supper is meant to do, to unite us, to bring us together in the body of Christ. Okay, let's re read a little bit further in 1 Corinthians 11, and, and uh, we'll finish up here. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. What you don't notice here in the English translation is that Paul has done something. He shifted the wording around. He shifted the pronouns up in the sentence to emphasize what Jesus said. And he actually put my up earlier in the sentence. So it's like, my body. Not for you to do whatever you want to with. He comes down to the, to the next line. And he took the cup. And he says, this is the covenant the new covenant in my blood, and it's emphatic. And it's for you. It's given for you. Jesus said it's mine. And he says he will sit at the head of this table. No one else will. It is his, and it's his to invite whomever he chooses to that table. That's why the ground is level, we say, at the foot of the cross. And the ground is level at the foot of the table. My body, my blood, what did he do with them? He gave it up. What do we do in the body of Christ for each other? We give ourselves up. This is learning to live in Christ. And for you. Poured out as it needs to be. You're for me. Poured out as you need to be. Why is that? Because we're here at the same table. 
that the Lord poured out for us. It's what we partake of when we partake at the Lord's Supper. We take his life into us, his life into ours. We're united there. Do this, he said, as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's go to the last slide here. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Wow. Again, I'm, I'm rehearsing some of the things Brother Charles talked about. But this does not mean that we should stare inside ourselves every week and say, am I worthy? Nobody's ever worthy in that sense. The whole point of the Lord's Supper is that he's the only one. Is anyone worthy? <laughs> he is, right? Not us. But there is a way we partake that is in congruence with what he has done. And that's the worthy way to partake. And he's telling us specifically what it is. It's not doing morbid introspection until we've uh, rooted out the very last drop of any sin we can find inside ourselves. It's looking at the body of Christ. It's prioritizing the body of Christ. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body. You see that? Discerning the body. Eats and drinks judgment on himself. What's the body there? You see, Paul's already made a connection in this context between this body, this invisible loaf I'm holding here. <laughs> between this body and this body. Right? And they go together. He's not separating them out. If we're here discerning this body, we're also discerning this body. And the way to partake of the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner is to partake of it as a devoted person in the body of Christ, as someone who loves your brothers and sisters, as someone who does not elevate yourself above your brothers and sisters, as someone who will not tolerate division among your brothers and sisters, as someone who will not live with hostility with your brothers and sisters. In the early church, when they came together, in the assembly, someone, a deacon would stand up and ask, is anyone here angry with your brothers and sisters? They would ask it in the church. Because they knew if they allowed that hostility to settle in and abide in the church, you destroyed the spiritual life of the church. And so they had a whole process where they would ask it openly, and people understood that, that if you have a problem, you started working on, on getting rid of it. If you could do it immediately, you did. If you needed help to go through a process, they would help you with that. To work towards reconciliation but you didn't just come to the table saying well i sort of just don't like i would never say hate but i just don't ever really want to be around that person over there you didn't come take the, the lord's supper like that because what the gospel does is it announces reconciliation it is a gospel of peace Peace with God and peace with one another. And the, the wall of hostility has been torn down. Yes, between Jew and Gentile, but also between everybody else. So that Christ is all and Christ is in all. That's why we have to prioritize reconciliation. If you've been coming to church for years with hostility in your heart, let me tell you, the Lord's Supper says to you, do something about it. 
if we've been coming to church for years satisfied to be unnecessarily divided with our brothers and sisters. The Lord's Supper says to all of us, do something about this. Here together, we are reconciled. No walls of division can stand any longer before this table. This is, this is world renewing. You understand? Our world is looking for answers right now. Looking for answers to tear down the hostility that's there. This is the answer. This is the spiritual life and power of Christ. That is the answer to our world's problems. The walls come down. Let me just tell you this story in closing. It, it applies to the rich and poor. But it also applies to every other hostility or division that may exist in the body of Christ. In the early church, I just love this. In the early church, when the bishop was speaking, you didn't interrupt him. Because they understood it's a very special time, this time of, of gathering the church together and hearing the word spoken. So, so you didn't interrupt. If somebody came in and it was a wealthy person, they had deacons in the building and they would say, well, you come, you know, sit over here. And somebody would, they would treat them kindly and courteously and they would, they would give them a space um, and move on. But they wouldn't interrupt the bishop but do you know what would happen i mean there were, there's a, a early christian instruction that, that teaches this uh document and uh it it says that uh if a poverty stricken person comes in to your assembly you know what they do the bishop's supposed to shut up <laughs> don't say that kids that's that's just me the bishop's supposed to be quiet and stop the sermon. And if need be, tell the poor person to come and take the bishop's seat so they'll have a place to sit. In other words, they'd make a scene if the poor person comes into the assembly. You know what's, what's happening? The world's being transformed. That's turning the world upside down right there. That's saying we're going to level things out now. And I want to say to you that that is what happens every week, in a sense, when we come to the Lord's table. In a sense, every week we make a scene. And we say there will be no hierarchical values here. There will be no distance here. There will be no hostility here. There will be no I'm better than you here. My group's better than your group here. But we come together at the table and we say this is Jesus' body. And this is Jesus' blood. And we all stand level before him. That's what the Lord's Supper teaches us. It's the gospel. It's a gospel of reconciliation. Jesus has reconciled me, though I am unworthy. He's reconciled you, though you are unworthy. And we come to the table together as unworthy people. And we partake with gratitude. Let me close this in prayer. Lord, teach us. Let us know what it means to sit at your table and for you to be at the head and for the church to share richly in the supper you have given us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.